Hey everyone, Ron Garen here. First, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Orbital Perspective podcast. What started out as a discussion around sheltering in place almost a year ago has turned into a discussion platform centered around making our world and our future better for everyone. Let's keep that discussion going. I also wanted to let you know that my next book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, launches on May 4th of this year. It's the sequel to my first book, The Orbital Perspective, and goes much deeper into solving the challenges that our world faces and how we can come together as one to create solutions. It's part autobiography, part action movie, part love story, with a message of unity that I would like to share with the world. For my loyal podcast listeners, I'm offering a 25% discount off the retail price. To get the savings, simply go to floatingindarkness.com forward slash order and enter the code PODCAST to save 25%. It's good for the next 48 hours, and it's my way of saying thanks for joining me on this incredible journey towards a better future. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Orbital Perspective Podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is that they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. Hi, everyone. Happy Veterans Day. Uh, I want to start off uh, by saying thank you. Thank you to all the veterans out there. Thank you to everybody who has served. Um, and, you know, I, I think not everybody realizes that the sacrifice of military members is 24-7, regardless if we're in wartime or in peacetime. And it's not just the servicemen or the service women that uh, are making those sacrifices. It's the, the entire family. It's the, the children, the parents, the spouses uh, of those. Uh, so a very, very special thanks to everyone who uh, sacrifices, who works so hard uh, and is so dedicated to preserving the freedoms that we, that we all uh, cherish so dearly. And I think what military service does, I think it really brings out a, a wonderful aspect of, of human nature. And that is the ability to have service beyond self, to see something bigger than ourselves, whether it's our unit or our squad, you know, our squadrons or our service or our nation. Um, it's to be able to see and sacrifice 
for those things that we perceive as greater than us. Um, we're part of it, but, but the overarching uh, structure is greater uh, than us. And I think uh, that is an incredibly powerful human trait. It's, the, it's probably the human trait that has enabled us to go from a weak, insignificant species to basically the rulers of the world. Uh, this ability to uh, participate uh, in something that's bigger than all of us. And, and uh, that camaraderie, that unity is, is never more needed than right now. We need to realize that we really, really are all in this together. Uh, we really need to come together uh, and realize that we are one nation uh, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Uh, and that's <laughs> this moment in history, uh, it's, it's more important than ever uh, to realize that. And so my guest today uh, epitomizes uh, service before self, uh, serving something bigger than, than oneself. Jacqueline Novogratz uh, is personally responsible for lifting millions of people uh, in, around the world out of destitute poverty. Uh, and she's one of my heroes, and I'm really excited that uh, we're going to have a, a really interesting conversation today. With that, I'm going to introduce Jacqueline Novogratz. Jacqueline Novogratz is the New York Times bestselling author of The Blue Sweater. Her second book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World, was published in May of 2020. I was so impressed with Jacqueline's first book, The Blue Sweater, that I took it with me to space on my half-year mission back in 2011. In 2001, Jacqueline founded Acumen with the idea of investing philanthropic patient capital in entrepreneurs seeking to solve the toughest issues of poverty. As a pioneer of impact investing, Acumen and its investments have brought critical services like healthcare, education, and clean energy to hundreds of millions of low-income people. After supporting hundreds of entrepreneurs, Jacqueline and her team recognized character as the crucial ingredient for success. In 2020, they launched Acumen Academy to instruct others in global social change. Under Jacqueline's leadership, Acumen has also launched several for-profit impact funds designed to invest at the intersection of poverty and climate change and has spun off 60 decibels founded on the principle that serving all stakeholders is as important as enriching shareholders. Jacqueline has been named one of the top 100 global thinkers by foreign policy, one of the 25 smartest people of the decade by the Daily Beast, and one of the world's 100 greatest living business minds by Forbes, which also honored her with the Forbes 400 Lifetime Achievement Award for Social Entrepreneurship. Everybody, please help me welcome Jacqueline Overgrants. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi, Ron. It's great to be here. And um, what a beautiful introduction um, to everyone. Um, I also want to join you in wishing everyone um, happy Veterans Day and to thank all of the veterans for the service they've given and just you're bringing me back to when we first met and how blown away I was when you told me that you had my book up in space. And so just thank you for having me, Ron. It's, it's my pleasure. And, and you being a military brat or uh, a, <laughs> a child of a military member, uh, to put it more accurately, I guess, I think you you understand that the sacrifice is, is amongst the whole family. Um, and so thank you for, for all those years that, that you put up with your dad traveling around and, and going from this place to that place and, and thank, thank him for his service. Well, I appreciate that you say that. You, you, you also made me think about that. You know, he did, he actually served three tours in Vietnam and Korea and I'm the eldest of seven. And so um, thinking about what my mother, what a partnership they had and the, the ideas of duty, as you said, um, and service to something beyond yourself is just, I feel so grateful that I could be part of that. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about the blue sweater. And I, I just to start off, let me let me explain to everybody why I took your book, the blue sweater, into space with me. Um, I was just really, really blown away by 
well, first of all, by the example you use to prove the, the fact that we live in this interconnected world. So the title of the book is The Blue Sweater. Actually, the subtitle is Bridging the Gap Between the Rich and Poor in an Interconnected World, right? And so your, your proof that we live in an interconnected world is you were walking along in the streets of Kigali, Rwanda, and you saw a kid wearing a blue sweater that you recognize. And you had a, you used, when you were a kid, you had a blue sweater just like that. And you went up and you said hi, and you, it turned out it was this actually was the blue sweater that you had that you gave to Goodwill like ten years before, right? I mean, yeah, had my name written on the tag. Yeah. So what? That's the perfect example of what happens in one part of the world affects everything else, and we every thought, word, and action that we we uh, have on a daily basis uh, ripples out and not only affects the trajectory of our own lives, but the trajectory of the entire society and many, many, many lives. And your book um, really drove that home in a, in a real way. And, and you know, it's interesting. You're, you also epitomize, I think, the overall perspective because there is a, there's a term called the overview effect, uh, which is the shift in perspective that uh, some astronauts describe after seeing the planet uh, from space and in space. And it was coined by Frank White in his book, The Overview Effect. And Frank and I are good friends, and we've had many, many conversations about this. And we've both come to the conclusion that if the overview effect is the shift in perspective that one has when they when they have this aha moment, the orbital perspective is what you do with it. The orbital perspective is the call to action that comes from that comes from um, the overview effect. And I think the blue sweater is a perfect example of that. You had your overview effect moment, right? You saw this kid on the streets of Kigali wearing your sweater, and you didn't just stop there. You you had a call that gave you a call to action. Uh, and your call to action has resulted in millions of people being lifted out of, out of destitute poverty. And that's, I think that epitomizes what I try and describe in the orbital perspective and why in the book, The Orbital Perspective, uh, I have so many stories in there about folks who exhibit that without ever having been to space because you don't need to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. And I, I think you exemplify that perfectly. Well, thank you for that. We also, though, I don't know if you remember this, Ron, because you you shared with me when we first met um, that when you saw the earth from space, even though it may sound cliche, that there were no lines, there were no boundaries, um, you also realized what a fragile oasis this tiny, tiny planet was. And that for the rest of your life, you wanted to work on actually erasing these arbitrary boundaries that we put between ourselves so that we can focus on the biggest issues of our time together. And that was so resonant with me that I just felt instant kinship. And, um, and so you helped me also reframe in, in ways that I won't forget, so. Well, thank you, thank you for that. And the last time we saw each other in person, uh, we were walking through Muir Woods together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hugging some trees, <laughs> not really. Uh, but appreciating appreciating nature. So I want to encourage everybody who's uh, tuning in live. Um, thank you for tuning in live and be a part of this conversation. Give us your your questions and your comments, uh, and and we'll try and uh, jump right into it. So let, let's let's talk about acumen uh, for a couple minutes. Can you can you just um, give everybody uh, the the objectives? Uh, well, first of all, how it started and 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 how, what it evolved to. Yeah. So. When you talked about that blue sweater, I found that in Kigali, Rwanda um, in 1986, to date myself. Um, when I was there to create the first uh, microfinance bank in the country um, with a small group of Rwandan women, I had come there after having worked on Wall Street, um, mostly in Latin America in the early 80s. And in Latin America, on Wall Street, what I saw was that markets have a real role to play, but too often they overlook or exclude the poor. Rwanda. I saw what top-down approaches to charity and aid um, could do. And I also saw how they too often create dependence. And so I kept focusing on what would, what would we create if we actually use the tools of the market and understood the role of government um, more effectively, starting by solving the problems of poverty and importantly, defining poverty not as the absence of wealth, but the absence of dignity. And, um, and so Acumen was born in 2001. At the heart of it was this idea of patient capital. We would raise philanthropy and then we would invest long-term equity and debt 10 to 15 years in entrepreneurs that were daring to solve clean water and healthcare and 
housing and energy and agriculture and education, the basic services um, to people that made a couple of dollars a day. Um, we would accompany those entrepreneurs with management services and with connections to other partners that could help them. And any money that came back to Acumen would be reinvested in innovation for the poor. Um, over time, we saw that that wasn't enough, even though that, that approach um, has helped us invest about $140 million, move another $700 million into our companies to really change the lives of 300 million low-income people around the world. But we also saw, and you, you met some of these guys when you were in the space station. I don't know if you remember this as well. We saw that capital isn't enough to solve our problems. We've got to really build human talent. And so we started a university, if you will, called Acumen Academy, um, the World's School for Social Change. And on that, um, we have a whole series of courses, accelerators, ways to start to build a global community of change makers across race, class, ethnicity, religion, because we believe that innovation and change has to come from everywhere. And, um, and that's also produced remarkable ideas and community and, um, and innovations. Because at this moment in our history, it's so clear that all of us are needed to solve our toughest problems. You know, a common theme that I found in, in both the Blue Sweater and uh, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, your new book, which I'm in chapter four of, I have to admit, I'm not all the way through it yet. But a common theme in there is, is the ability to listen, right? To, to not come into an area or not come into a situation thinking that we already have all the answers. Um, and, to, and for that, that requires a certain level of humility, right? And so can you maybe talk about that since, since you've written so much on it and you've applied it so much in your life and your career uh, and how we can apply that, how our listeners can apply that to the divisiveness that's, that we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, and I'm glad you went to the divisiveness because if we look around, particularly in this uh, political moment, um, I think none of us would feel that our leaders are listening in fact, they seem to be doing everything but to one another. And um, and that applies to making change altogether. Uh, it applies to everything in our lives. And so, as you said, when I first went to save the world, yeah. um, what I found so often was that um, I, I came in with my own assumptions of what people needed and found very quickly that most people don't want to be saved, certainly not by... Uh, foreigners who didn't fully have an understanding of what their issues were, what their situation was. Um, and that was my job to listen, not from a place of certainty, but from a place of inquiry. And that's really where the humility comes in. Um, I have so many examples of it, but probably the best would be uh, even, uh, it came late uh, and it's a funny story, even after we had built this solar company that has now brought 100 million people electricity and solar energy across Africa and South Asia. This was earlier on, probably seven, eight years ago, um, but it was a real success, we knew it. And we knew that if you offered people affordable, accessible, attractive solar products, um, people would make the switch if they could pay for it in ways that made sense for their economic situation. And, um, and then I was in Pakistan where the company had not yet uh, established operations. And it was literally like 122 degree day. I was sitting outside with a group of uh, women weavers and um, it was so hot, even the cows were lying down. And so I was, um, talking to the women about their lives. They were part of a bank that we helped build. And I said to them, you know, we've got this um, solar company in Africa and India, and it's fundamentally changed people's lives. And um, if we brought it to Pakistan and got the license for it here, would you all be interested in buying it? And this big woman leaned forward and sweat dripping down her face. And she said, we're hot. We don't want a light bring us a fan. And I was like, a fan? I, I don't have a fan. We have a light. But with this light, you can stay up later. You can work. Your children can study. And she cut me off. And she said, we work enough. 
bring us a fan. Yeah. <laughs> and it was such a moment for me. Uh, I thought I was this great listener. And, and, and if you ask people and they feel that you actually care about the answer, they'll tell you. We have to ask. And, um, and sure enough, now we've got many of the com our companies actually distribute through Pakistan. And it's so, I always smile when I go into really hot places and <laughs> you see home units that will not sell yeah. unless you have at least one fan right. as part right. of the unit. Right. Um, so it's simple. When you're talking about talking, listening across lines of difference, Ron, I think there's a skill set we have to do a much better job at teaching our children mm -hmm. and frankly practicing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that is um, particularly in really tense situations. It's not enough to say blue, no, red, no, blue, no, red. We don't get anywhere. Um, can we instead say, I hear something in what you've said. Let me acknowledge it. And let me find even a shred of truth in what you're saying um, to open up a space. And when you do that, it's highly likely that the person on the other side will see that space and, and take a tiny step toward you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you give up your principles, right. but it means you acknowledge the other person as a full human being. And that's what we're missing. Right. That you, you just hit the, the nail on the head with that. Acknowledging the other person as a full human being. That is, that's where we've lost out because the first thing that normally happens in these, I, I, I don't even want to call them conversations, but these shouting matches uh, is that they belittle the person on the other side of the camera, the other side of whatever, you know, the phone, the, the internet to something less than human, uh, something, um, Certainly less intelligent than human. Uh, certainly less intelligent than the person who's speaking. Um, so we need we need to all listen better. And and uh, thank you all for the questions and comments that are coming in. So let's uh, let's be good listeners and let's uh, let's address one. Um, uh, here's a here's a one that's uh, really good from Jason. A tough one. Uh, does erasing borders equal globalism? How can we protect values such as privacy, individualism, and freedoms from elitists and ambitions? Uh, how can we not forget that capitalism, such as in the U.S., has helped fund most of the world's benevolence. Uh, how can we protect these freedoms? Uh, any thoughts on that? I think it's a great question. And, and in a way, it goes to um, my belief in that what we really have to do is to hold the different values that you laid out um, in tension. That we're at a moment in our history where we are um, irrefutably interdependent on each other. And our biggest problems like climate change, like the pandemic must be solved globally. And yet if we only think and act globally, we completely miss what it means to be rooted in community, be kind to our neighbors and ensure that there is equity within countries and across countries. And that's why I think so many of our answers need to lie in locally rooted and globally connected um, solutions. The second thing I would say is, I love that, you know, when I talk about dignity, what I'm talking about is, is choice, it's freedom, it's the ability to make your own decisions. And that's what we're after. But markets by themselves um, do that for some people, but not all people. That's something that we've actually seen with globalization. In fact, I talk about the market as a listening device, but in so many um, of our sectors, it's, it's too broken to listen. And so we've got a couple that desire for um, just markets and freedom with the acknowledgement that we also need community, that we also need to protect the poor and the vulnerable. And it's in that nexus that we find the most creative and generative innovations and opportunities. And that's been the real joy of my life. And I hope that one contribution that Acumen can make is to bring forward these kinds of innovations that reach the most people and essentially set them free. You know, what's interesting, you know, you've, you've been very, very successful throughout your career and there's lots of reasons for, for that success. 
um, you know, your intelligence, your drive, your dedication. But also, I think one of the big reasons why Acumen and, and you yourself are so successful is because you have embraced hope, you've embraced on wonder, you've, you've uh, seen value where other people couldn't see value. And I think part of the reason, if not the main reason why you're able to do that is because you're not embracing fear. You know, fear is a, is a very strong motivator, um, but it's a strong motivator for short-term action. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's a, it's a strong motivator for real long-term sustainable uh, lasting uh, progress. Um, starting from a foundation of awe and wonder, starting from a foundation of hope, I think uh, is. And to address uh, Jason's question about globalism, um, maybe one, one quick story that I'll share is um, on my second mission when I, when I returned to earth uh, and, we, and we, when we landed in, in our Soyuz capsule, um, I, I just remember this, this thought just washing over me over and over again, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. And I, it felt so good to be home. And then the thought dawned on me, I'm home, but I'm in Kazakhstan. And so in that, that. In, in that moment, my home wasn't just, you know, Houston, Texas, or at the time I lived with my family, home was earth. And then I thought, wow, did, did my definition of the word home just change or did it broaden it or did it, was it broadened? And if I, if it was broadened, does that mean I have to relinquish all those things that I defined at home before? Does that mean that I'm any less American if I think home is earth? And the answer came really forcefully. Of course not. Being, you know, thinking ourselves, uh, and I don't, I don't use the word global um, because global is, uh, we don't live on a globe, we live on a planet and global doesn't take into account the biosphere of earth. And so I, I think of myself as planetary, a planetary citizen, a, pla a citizen of earth. Um, and so thinking of ourselves in that term, uh, as, a, as a planetary citizen doesn't make us any less American or German or Rwandan or whatever it is. It simply means we see our national identity within the context of the bigger picture. And in that context, it makes all of us stronger. It's, it doesn't make us weaker. It makes us stronger because we have, and, and in the introduction to the podcast, it talks about having multiple points of view gives, gives us the depth of a situation. It allows us to solve the real problems, not the, not the symptoms of the problems. It, it allows us to, to act on hope and on wonder and not just act, you know, reactively to, to fear. And I think uh, that's a really important thing. You don't have to give up uh, you know, that national identity to realize that you're part of a family of nations that's, <laughs> that's within a biosphere that we call Earth. Well, I love that. I love that, Ron. And I actually think that there, there are metaphors all the way throughout our lives. Um, you know, I mentioned that I'm one of seven and we're all really big personalities um, with very independent lives, yet we have a very strong identity as a family. And yet maybe because that identity was so strong. We were always the household that every other kid in the neighborhood wanted to sit at the table with. And so our house was always full with many, many other people. And we began to see ourselves as part of this chosen family, as well as our uh, biological family. And I think it's that, it's, it's that same metaphor that we've all got to do a better job becoming both patriots and citizens of the planet as you would say, yeah. because um, when we move from a, a, a wholeness and sense of strength and identity, um, I think we can see what others bring in really powerful ways too. And certainly that's been my experience. One of the, when I, when we decided to take Acumen's work, which had started off focusing on absolute poverty. So places like Rwanda, Nigeria, Pakistan, India, um, to America, um, not only was it exciting to see what we could do by bringing innovations here as well as exporting it elsewhere, but it meant a lot to our fellows and to our communities around the world that we were acknowledging how much work there was to be done in the United States. Right. And, um, and I think, again, it comes to, are we willing to hold the tensions? Yeah. And, you know, our, our mutual friend, Muhammad Yunus, um, has done the same thing. You know, he started Grameen uh, in Bangladesh. Uh, and then there's Grameen America now offering, you know, microfinance uh, loans. Um, you know, the other thing is, you know, we both spent some time in Rwanda. And 
the time in Rwanda and my time, you know, traveling around the world with Muhammad Yunus and, and really seeing uh, people from all over the world in destitute poverty really redefined my view of, of poverty. Um, mm. And I, you know, everywhere I went, I saw resourceful, well-meaning, uh, you know, um, ambitious folks who were primarily being held down by their situation. Um, and they just needed things like, you know, microfinance or, or some type of, you know, way to get to the starting line, basically, uh, to, to get out of that cycle of poverty that is multi-generational in, in many cases. Um, speaking of that, I think we have another, another good question here um, from Rosario. Were you connected, Jacqueline, to the bottom of the pyramid market approach serving most uh, underserved people? If so, then... Um, if so, then evolved into developing human talent as you shifted focus from market to education to drive quality, sustained impact at scale. Um, in in a way, I'm, I think I'm just pragmatic. And 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 Ram was talking about when we were both in Rwanda. Um, I think we had similar experiences. I was working in Rwanda at a time when the average income was $112 per year, yeah. and so we truly were talking about serious poverty and yet what i saw there and i have seen in every country around the world was this this striving to be upwardly mobile in in low-income people and um and so often the charity approach was not allowing people to solve their own problems and so it just made sense to me i didn't know any of the terminology at the time um but when we decided to start acumen we weren't any longer looking at microfinance, $30, $50 uh, loans and investments. We were looking at quarter million, million dollar investments um, on entrepreneurs that we thought not only had insight, but the capability of building real solutions to solve problems. Um, and I learned a number of things on that path. One, as you say, that, that human capital is as important, if not more important than the right kind of financial capital. Um, and so that's when we really started to make those investments and also in character, finding the individuals with the resilience, the grit, the ability to listen. Um, and then importantly, um, where I think we were short-sighted is we thought the market could do more than it could. And certainly when you were looking at areas like public education or primary education, primary healthcare, clean water, um, the only way you would actually get to reach millions of people rather than thousands of people was to partner with government. And that's a, a whole other skill set. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a journey for me, but it started with the capital and now it is much more um, focused on building the right kinds of ecosystems. But the North Star, and it goes back to the first question, is what does it take to allow um, people to move themselves out of poverty. Yeah, and again, we talked about this um, earlier. It, it, one of the secret ingredients is the ability to listen. And I, I do wanna jump into the manifesto for moral revolution a, a little bit, because your new golden rule is that we need to give back more to the world than we take. And if I, if I could, I wanna read a couple of quotes um, from your book. Um, you say, our hearts and our heads are divided at precisely the time when we most need them to work in tandem. And then you go on to say, those in positions of authority, anyone whose words might carry greater weight than the voices of others, need to listen more and not assume because the rules work for them that they know that they, they know what works for everyone. Listening effectively can influence the way we perceive others in all directions. Just as being poor says nothing about one's character, neither, neither does one's bank account that marks them as rich. And I just want to pop up uh, a question from Luana or a comment. The world needs leaders now to speak out and give others permission to speak the truth in their communities and families, which includes using compassion and safe meeting place. Um, what we've forgotten is how to, is how to listen as, as a country. Thanks for that, Luana. So um, I think that you are able to do what you've done in Rwanda and in other places of the world be simply because, or not simply, mostly because of your ability to listen. Um, and um, that is being able, you can't solve real problems without an ability to listen. If you, if you already know all the answers, 
then you're not going to learn anything. Um, and I think that's what that's you've, what you've proven. So, so. Uh, well, it's ironically, you know, acumen superpower, right? It's not that we're smarter than anybody. Um, it's that we're probably more curious. Um, and we really want to understand the people that we are there, not to quote unquote help, but to serve um, and to partner with. And um, you, you've mentioned Wanda a few times, and I really do believe that that is a place where I learned that, that listening by itself can be not only a la an act of hope and an act of love, but it's an act of activism. And, um, you know, I started this bank seven years before the genocide. I, I had very deep relationships with people who ended up playing every role of the genocide, including being major perpetrators. And so having to confront that good people can do horrendous things was definitely one of the most painful um, reckonings in my life. Um, but when I first went back in 1996, so people were still coming back from the refugee camps. Um, bodies were still in different um, exposed sites across the nation. Um, I would sit with women who'd been part of my community um, sometimes for 12, 13 hours a day. Not because I had signed up to do it, but because they needed someone to hear their stories. And I just happened to be there. And um, I think that also taught me how to listen, not just with my ears, but with all parts of myself. And, um, and that's also when I saw that this idea that there are good people and bad people is so broken, but that we have angels and monsters inside each of us and that the monsters are actually our broken parts, our insecurities, our fears. And that in times of real insecurity, which is what we're going through right now with everything that's going on with our pandemic, our inequality, it becomes really easy to prey on those fears. And that's when we are at risk of doing terrible things. And as someone who has lost more people than I would like to admit, um, good people. Uh, there is no single thing we should be practicing more than listening and um, trying to break through the, the toxic identity politics that is between us. Exactly. I, I'm, that was beautiful. Uh, and what really, what really hit home for me was that there are no good people and bad people. There's, you know, there's good and bad in, in everybody, or there's demons and angels in, in, in everyone. And I think we, we subconsciously a lot of times tend to project our own darkness on, onto others as well. Um, and which, which creates a, a situation where we can't listen. And, you know, you, you also talk a lot about moral, moral leadership. Um, can you speak to that just a little bit and, and, and what you mean by that? Yeah, and it's important that when I talk about moral leadership, I'm not talking about righteousness mm -hmm. or a set of rules prescribed from some higher authority. I'm really talking about the kind of leadership that starts by um, focusing on serving others, not yourself. Over the last 30, 50 years, we have become so hyper-individualistic as a society, um, and, and many of our leaders have defined their success by money, power, and fame. And that has seeped through um, into all of us, into our schools, into the way we too often raise our children. And, um, and that's what also needs to change. And I believe is changing. Um, but it's the moral, it's the focus on moral leadership. I work primarily with entrepreneurs, um, individuals who are not simply trying to make money, but are, are using tools of business to solve really tough problems. Um, they take risks. They fight a status quo that doesn't want to change. Um, they are often not thanked for the work they do for many, many years. And yet it is because of them that I've seen entire systems change. Uh, this morning I spoke to um, one of our entrepreneurs that from Chicago who went to Ethiopia having never held a live chicken in his life. But the the chicken industry there was so non-existent. Um, it, it previously had been run by government that he decided, well, 
Maybe I'll just try. He's an incredible listener. He's an incredible um, boundary crosser with a great sense of humility. Um, he said to me once, Dave, this is a guy named Dave, Dave Ellis. If you go in as a guest and you act as a guest, maybe over time you'll be treated as a local. And that's exactly what happened to this young guy who learned Amharic, the local language, and um, and really turned an economic model on its head. And, and it's a model that today is about a $50 million company that serves millions of low-income farmers across the nation and um, has been credited by government in one region for reducing childhood malnutrition by 11%. That's the promise of moral leadership. But you're trusted, you earn trust, not by pandering um, and certainly not by listening to just to what polls say, but by finding your truth, by daring to hold sometimes opposing beliefs in tension, as, un as uncomfortable as that is, and, um, and always making decisions based on what's good for the whole and not just for you. Right. You know, you're, you brought up a good point there, and, and that is seeking truth, right? And we live in this, in these boxes and, you know, with echo chamber walls right now, we've, we've put ourselves in boxes, others have put us in boxes. And, you know, you talk about listening, right? And, and what I'm saying is that there is, there is no listening beyond, across the walls, right? So, you know, we, we, as you said, we, we have this really, um, this really strong tendency to demonize others that that have a, opposing views. You know, why should I listen? You know, what? You know, how do how do we answer somebody that says, why should I possibly listen to the other side? You know, they want to turn our democracy into a socialist state. Uh, they want they are nothing but racists, or um, you know, they get their their they don't they don't think the news is you know they think the news is completely false and they anything that that the news says is is untrue and so there's this we live in this incredible world of disinformation you know we live in an interconnected world which is this part of the subtitle of your first book uh, and which is true we're hyper interconnected hyper interdependent uh, but we have if you layer on top of that interconnection all of these falsehoods, all of these, all of this misinformation, you know, how does somebody navigate on, a, on one of our, uh, one of the folks who, who commented last week said, you know, how do I, I'm completely exhausted trying to find what's true. How do I find what's true? So is there any, I know this is a really tough question, but uh, is there any advice that you give folks because you're investing millions of dollars. So you have to come up with your best guess of what is true. <laughs> so are any any pointers uh, on that? <laughs> First of all, I, I think we have to get beneath words and we have to be very careful about the words that we use. We throw words like capitalist and socialist at each other. Right, right, right. Um, talk to me about the values underlying yes. systems that we want to be building. Um, and... And, and focus on yourself, not like you are this, you know, you are a racist. That's pretty much a, a hard way to start a conversation that is going to be about finding truth. Rather, here's where I struggle. And here's where I see our systems really failing uh, people of color. Here's where I think we have an opportunity that can also change a dynamic where I have found truth, and I think it's completely connected, Ron, to trust, is in, um, one, in modeling it, is showing up and showing up over and over again, daring to sit with discomfort um, and saying uncomfortable things out loud from a place that is clearly intending to do the right thing. Um, sharing failures. These are not the stuff we teach in business school, yeah. or frankly, in any of our schools. And what I found over the year, and I was just talking to my team about this because we recently got a big um, award from a financial institution, um, a, a grant, well, an investment. Um, and I said, you know, we never talk about the, the real hard skills that, yes, we're competitive in terms of knowing how to invest, but 
this was largely an investment made because we've earned trust because for 15 years, we have shown up, told the truth, admitted failure, gotten back on the horse to work again. And bonds of truth get built. What's so hard in this toxic moment of social media is truth and trust take time. And so how do we also cultivate and inculcate in ourselves the idea that we have to build within ourselves the things that people can't take away from us. And first and foremost is our integrity and our reputation. And, um, and again, that's where the shift to these simple adages of give more to the world than you take and move away from money, fame, and power because at the end of the day, that's not where you create meaning and purpose anyway. Sure. So I have found that people do tell the truth if you are willing to sit with the discomfort and, and, and offer the truth. But um, we have a long way to go at a societal level where right. we trust each other. We don't trust our institutions. I think part of the reason why things are so amplified right now, the division is so amplified right now, is because people are, are really, really hurting. We've had you know crisis after crisis after crisis. Um, and you know the pandemic is is raging on. It's the worst it's ever been. You know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are calling causing uh, suffering uh, to us as a nation to the uh, and around the world. Uh, and again, I think you hit the hit the nail on the head when you talked about um, we need to be careful about the words that we use and what those words mean. Uh, because there is a really, really strong tendency right now to label folks. So the the world is so complicated right now. It's so complex. It's so scary uh, with all the suffering that's going on, with all these crises that are going on. And I have found myself uh, in a position where in order to deal with all this, I have created a simplified framework to view the world through, right? And in this in this process of simplifying it, uh, and creating, creating this filter to, to view the world in, I, I start making cubby holes, right? And I start putting groups and people and organizations and political parties into cubby holes, right? Uh, and each of the cubbies has its own little label on it, right? <laughs> and that is the problem. The problem is that we're, we are so quick to label people, label groups. Uh, and, and worse than that is these cubby holes. These cubby holes over here, these are the people that I'll listen to, that I'll talk to, that uh, I re respect their value in. These people over here, I don't, they, they don't know anything and, and uh, they, they provide no value to the equation. They're just trying to destroy everything. And so that's, I, that's what's happening over and over and over again all around the world, particularly in the U.S. right now, this oversimplification and this really uh, knee-jerk reaction to label people. Uh, but if you dive in, well, what do you mean by that term? What do you mean? What do you, what is the what is the motivation? I think you really you really hit that one on the head. But Ron, also, I think what we need more, especially in America today, is common problems that we're solving together. Right. And in that, also, I think has been the history of acumen. You know, when I step back and think, our, look at our community, which is now quite large and across the world. Many of us were raised to hate each other. Um, we are Indians and Pakistanis and I mean, you name it, we are it. We are every religion. We are conservatives and we are liberals um, at, at the global level, which is a much larger spectrum than you would even find in the United States. And so um, what binds us, what allows us to get to know each other is that we're focused on solving our real problems healthcare, housing, energy. And in that solving of problems, we have a, a, a better chance to know each other. And that is the work we have to get back to doing as Americans. Culturally, this is an incredibly entrepreneurial nation. We are can do. And, um, and what's been thrilling to me during COVID, um, which has been such a hard time full of so much despair for so many people, is that I'm watching the Acumen America entrepreneurs run um, just pivot, change the model, move from pragmatism. And so just two quick examples, because one's in urban L.A. and one's in rural Montana. Um, in, in urban L.A., a company called Every Table, they hire low-income 
people in Compton, um, in the southern part of the city, um, essentially to provide fast, nutritious, affordable meals um, the, in food deserts where there hasn't been affordable food. People so appreciated it that this company grew very quickly pre-COVID from one to eight restaurants. When lockdown happened, the entrepreneur Sam Polk uh, impulsively uh, went back to his North Star that he started this company to get people healthy food, not to just make money. And so he sent out a tweet and said, look, if you need a healthy meal, let us know. Um, we'll deliver it to you. If you can't afford to pay it, we'll deliver it to you anyway. Um, but if you can afford to pay it forward, here's a link. And within weeks, they had delivered something like 100,000 meals. And then when the government connected homeless people with hotels, they contracted with every table. And by now they've reached, they've, they've delivered over 3 million meals. And so if you're watching consumers being turned into citizens, mm -hmm. um, everyday philanthropists, government partnering with the private sector, jobs created, and nobody's asking the politics of each individual's, but we're solving a problem that hasn't been solved. And in Montana, we have a company called um, My Village, where you've got 127 essentially small businesses, women that run tiny daycare centers in their homes, six to 12 kids, and a woman who really learned how to build anti-fragile companies in Africa um, had this insight that if you could get women and train them in the rudiments of basic daycare and not create a franchise model or a network model, but a community model, mm -hmm. um, they could provide really high quality, affordable daycare. And during COVID, you know, Acumen got the call, like I can't let 127 small businesses die in COVID and, and these children who are being cared for have parents who are essential workers. And so again, with a quick pivot, going to philanthropy, partnering with government, um, so that company is flourishing, and I think it could be a model for what we could do across the nation. We need more of these stories, Ron, that are stories of hope and um, and of possibility and of human connection, because we can solve these problems. You know, it, what what I'm getting from from that is is I mean, it's just proving the old adage: "United, we stand; divided, we fall." and the problems that we face right now are so big uh, that the only way we're going to we're going to solve them, the only way we're going to overcome these challenges is by figuring out how to set aside our differences and work together. Um, and you know, it reminds me, you know, I, I spent the first 15 years of my adult life training to fight the Russians. I was a Cold War fighter pilot, right? And uh, I sat nuclear alert in in West Germany uh, uh, back in the back in the 80s, um, and we were always we were always moments away from, you know, basically annihilating every living thing on the planet um, during that really, really tense moment. If you fast forward to 2011, I found myself in a top, former top secret Soviet military installation uh, at the base of a, of a rocket that was, would take us to space uh, for six months. And I looked up at the rocket and there was an American flag and a Russian flag side by side. And if that's not an example of beating, <laughs> beating swords into plow, plowshares, if that's not an example of, you know, the power of setting aside our differences and working together towards something uh, powerful and meaningful, I, I don't know what is. Because, you know, there was so much animosity between the, the Russians and the U.S. And when the Russians, when it was, we were talking about bringing the Russians into the International Space Station program, there was all kinds of pundits, there was all kinds of voices all around uh, the country and actually the world uh, basically saying, how could we possibly consider doing anything with the, with the Russians? Uh, we won't do anything with them until they stop doing X, Y, and Z or start doing you know, X, Y, and Z. Luckily, those voices um, didn't win out, and we did bring the Russians in. And what happened was when we started working with the Russians and we started realizing that their desires in the space program are, are the same as ours, uh, personal relationships started to develop, a, a certain level and foundation of trust started to develop. And now we have this platform, this international platform that contains 15 nations that can be used as a jump off point to start to address the things that we don't agree on. Uh, but what we tend to do is we tend to use the things we agree on 
as a stick to force the things that we don't agree on. And that never works. And so finding the common ground, I think what you're saying is, is finding this common ground, finding these problems and challenges that we can solve together, not you know, overlooking those differences. That doesn't mean you approve of them. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. That just means that you have chosen to focus on the commonalities, on the things that you share versus the things that are driving you apart. And step by step, I think that leads us to progress. That leads us to a better world. It leads us to, to less divisiveness. Uh, and so we're at a fork right now and we need to choose the fork towards greater unity. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. COVID has been very humbling mm -hmm. um, to all of us. It was truly and has been like a heat seeking missile aimed squarely at the poor and the vulnerable. And in the United States, um, people of color have been disproportionately impacted. Um, that's not a political statement. That's a actual statement. And we have to take that seriously and look at our systems. Um, but I'll tell you, there are people that don't think that's true. They will, there, there are people that think that that's a fabrication, that that, that, or at least an exaggeration, uh, that that doesn't, that that doesn't exist. I, I know many people, smart, well-meaning, kind people who don't think that's a true statement. I think it's a true statement. I think that, it, that systemic racism is, is, is so obvious that it's like arguing whether the earth is flat or not. But there's, like I said, intelligent, well-meaning people who I respect who have a difference of opinion there and don't think that's true. I mean, that you're, you're getting us right back to where we are as a nation. Um, and that's where we have to find our way to also looking at data and finding a way to trust it. Um, you know, when, when one out of three African-American or black men in the United States end up somewhere in the criminal justice system, we got a problem. And if the problem doesn't look ugly enough in the United States, when you go to any of the countries in which I operate and they look at those statistics, um, it's with horror. Um, in fact, Ron, when we first started to operate in the United States, I assumed that here we'd be learning about the, the, the poverty of inequality. I didn't understand that we would actually be seeing the poverty um, levels in absolute terms. And that in Southern India, where we operate, you have higher education rates, better maternal health um, rates, higher literacy rates than in some of the communities um, in the United States. We've got work to do. Mm -hmm. And the good news is if we can see the problem, we can solve the problem. And so part of the work that we have to do is to help each other see and in that seeing, see one another too. But we cannot run away from our problems if we want to become what we're capable of being. Right. And that reminds me of a, of a quote from Archbishop Bishop Desmond Tutu. He says, we cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from which change can begin, which I which I think pretty much sums, sums up where we're at right now because there are vastly different views of what reality is right now. Um, and that's, that's part of the problem. And I know that we're coming up on the hour and I know that you have to go. So I, I, I do want to wrap this up. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for all that you're doing in the world to, to make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. Uh, through through the many decades that you, that you've uh, done this, uh, I recommend the blue sweater to everybody. But I also re recommend um, Jacqueline's new book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. Uh, and how can people find out more about Acumen, uh, Jacqueline? Uh, where, where should they go to get more information on that? Thanks for that. Um, www.acumen.org and um, and uh, or acumenacademy.org. And Ron, one of, the, one of the things I just want to remind you of as well, um, it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, and part of what we owe each other is to show up for each other. And, and there was a time when I was having a, an event with low-income, wonderful uh, human beings from the slums of Nairobi. And somehow you managed to get a line, a direct line from the space shuttle 
<laughs> into the Nairobi slums um, to talk to these young men and, and let them know that they too were allowed to dream um, in the way that as a little boy, you dreamed of being an astronaut. And um, I'll never forget that. That's what we're also talking about. Well, that was my pleasure, my honor. Um, and, you know, I, I really believe that we're going to get through this. We're going to get through all of these crises. We're going to get through all these problems. Uh, we're going to come out the other side stronger and more unified. I know it's hard to see that light at the end of the tunnel right now, uh, but it's there. It's dim. Um, and I think we're going to I think we're going to look back on this period, this period of hardship and suffering and divisiveness and everything else. And we're going to see the growth that came out of it. You know, growth happens in dark times. Right. Uh, and I, I think I think we will look back on this as a, as a time of tremendous, tremendous transition and tremendous growth uh, for us as individuals and as a culture and as a society and as a nation. And uh, thank you. Thank you for being part of the immune response on our planet <laughs> to help heal us all uh, of this. So well, thank you. Thank you, Ron. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Yep. And with that, I'm going to I'm going to say goodbye to everybody uh, as soon as I find the outro. There it is. <laughs> but please uh, join us next week um, and uh, stay safe over the week. And uh, we'll see you back next week. Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space.